2006, November 14th. Today is Lecture 36, Worlds in Comparison. We'll begin in just a moment. So today we're going to, we've, we've finished yesterday our, our tour of the terrestrial planets, the four planets of the inner portion of the solar system, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Now we'd already talked about the Earth extensively in detail to provide a basis for comparison with the other planets as well as just to familiarize yourself with some of the language that we're going to be using to describe the terrestrial planets. Today we're going to take a step back. Instead of doing our continuous tour of the universe, we're going to actually step back and take a look at the various terrestrial planets, compare and contrast their properties. In some sense, there's not as much new in this lecture as compared to the other days, but what will be different, except for a little bit of vocabulary I'm going to introduce, is really going to, to re-emphasize what the main points of the previous lectures were and to try to draw some important comparisons and points of connection among the terrestrial planets. It used to be in this topic, you'd talk about the terrestrial planets one after another in sort of the travel log mode. And no one ever really talked about the similarities or what the lessons are that we learn and why we really care other than just sort of cultural impressions. There is a good reason for caring. We can learn a great deal from the terrestrial planets, not just about what our past was like, but perhaps what our future is going to be like. So today's lecture is going to be on a comparison of the terrestrial planets. We're going to start by looking at the surfaces and interiors, and we're going to see that what kind of surface and what kind of interior you have to a first approximation depends upon your size. The small bodies, in which I'm going to lump the moon, Mercury, Mars, and the moon, have old, cold surfaces and cold interiors. Whereas the larger bodies, which are the Venus and the Earth, have very young surfaces and still have hot interiors. And that's simply a function of their size. And the fact that they've got the hot interiors means that they're going to be geologically active, whereas the small bodies have long since gone geologically dead. And we're going to see that very clearly here. It's part of an expectation that we're building up we're going to use this as an expectation set that we'll then carry into the rest of the outer solar system and see if the principles we've learned or these ideas we picked up from the terrestrial bodies carry forward to the rest of the solar system objects. And then I want to say something about comparing their atmospheres. Some have atmospheres, some do not. All of these bodies, probably not the moon, but certainly Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, are big enough to have started out with very substantial atmospheres, very heavy atmospheres from volcanic outgassing at the very beginning of their history. But the evolution of those atmospheres to bring them up to what we see today when we send our spacecraft by or take a deep breath here on the Earth has been driven primarily by a combination of the greenhouse effect and some complex chemistry. We're going to see what those are and then what lessons there may be in that for the future atmosphere of the Earth. In my future atmosphere, I mean on billion-year timescales, not um, you know global warming and things like that. Something much more, much more long-term, where we actually have a good basis for saying things. All right, let's first of all just review what the terrestrial planets are, and I'm going to add into this group the Moon because it's a good example of a small body, even though it is not technically a planet per se. If the Moon was free-floating, it probably would be a planet or at least a dwarf planet. We have the large bodies, which are going to be the Earth and Venus, which are shown here. All these bodies here are shown on the, on the right-hand side of the slide to their proper scale. Earth is, of course, going to be our standard of reference for the sizes of planets in the solar system. So it has one Earth radius and one Earth mass, which I'll call R sub E and M sub E for shorthand. Venus is about 95% the radius of the Earth and has about 82% of its mass. So it's a rough twin of the Earth, at least in terms of mass and physical size. The small bodies, 
I'm just going to arbitrarily set them with Mars because Mars actually does belong in terms of its properties with Mercury and the Moon, at least in terms of its size and some of its internal geology. So Mars is about half the size of the Earth and about 11% of its mass. And then we get Mercury and the Moon. Moon is not all that much smaller than Mercury, as you can see from this picture. It's about where Mercury is about 38% the size of the Earth, the Moon is about 27% the radius of the Earth. But, of course, Mercury is much more massive, about 6% as compared to just a little over, little, under, little over 1% of the mass of the Earth for the Moon. So you can see, again, there's, a, there's a really a gulf. They really do divide themselves into big bodies and small bodies. Now, I could have tossed on into this mix Ceres, which is the large asteroid, a.k.a. the first dwarf planet, which also sort of has a lot of properties like it, except Ceres is just a little bit different enough, and we don't know enough about its properties. I'm just going to leave it out of this discussion. The first thing we're going to look at is planets, as we see them today, are the product of a process of physical evolution. Now, the word evolution is kind of a, uh, is, is often associated with biological evolution. But I want to remind you that the original meaning of the word evolution is an unfolding. That's basically how the, the Latin root actually uh, is translated. So whenever I talk about a system evolving, I'm talking about how that system unfolds, how that system progresses through time. What we're talking about here is a physical evolution. These planets are subject to physical processes. They're subject to internal processes, internal heat, volcanism, tectonism. Atmospheres are subject to physical processes like chemistry, like input of sunlight, evaporation, sequestration, things like that. And even orbits are subject to evolution. They're subject to physical processes like basic gravity, interactions of, gra of the gravity of those objects with the other objects in the solar system. So when we use the word evolution in astronomy, especially in the solar system, I'm talking about the physical evolution of the systems. And all planets evolve. They are, do not, if I look at the surfaces, if I look at the interiors, and I look at the atmospheres of the terrestrial planets today, they are not the same as they were four and a half, three and a half, two and a half billion years in the past. They have changed over time, and they will continue to change in the future. And so it is of interest to us to learn what this past is, to see if we can get lessons for what the future may be. So let's start with the planetary surfaces. The outward appearance of a planet is dominated by the appearance of its solid surface. And the process of evolution, the physical evolution of surfaces, is really driven by three fundamental processes within not only the inner solar system, but in fact, some of these processes should occur throughout the solar system. The first of these is impact cratering. Okay. Shortly after the formation of the terrestrial planets, they formed essentially in a gigantic debris field with the leftover material from the formation of the solar system. And so for the first billion years of the history of the solar system was called the epoch of heavy bombardment as this debris field was essentially either swept up, scattered into the sun, or scattered out of the solar system by the, inter by the action of the gravity of all the large bodies, primarily Jupiter, but also all the other planets. So either you gets smacked by a rock, or your gravity deflects that rock, either into an orbit that sends it into the inner solar system, or that scatters it out into the outer solar system. So it's a dynamic process. But eventually, you run out of rocks, and the impact simply tails off in an exponential rate. It sort of halves every few million years, until finally, after about a billion years, the impact cratering rate has dropped dramatically. So this is going to be the primary process occurring early in the solar system's history. When just after the crust was formed on a planet, and so we often refer to this as when the, the primary force behind what we'll refer to as the primary crust, the very first solid surface that the planet had just after it began to cool and solidify. 
The second major process that we expect to occur on terrestrial planets is volcanism. Now, volcanism can mean hot lava flows oozing out and gases billowing out, but we'll keep an eye out for volcanic-like processes. What a volcanic process generically is any process that brings interior material of the planet to that planet's surface. So, for example, in the outer solar system, we might see some ice moons that are made mostly of water ice and other things. You can have a form of volcanism on an ice moon, but instead of being, bringing liquid hot rock, you're bringing liquid water from the interior, which freezes onto the surface and repaves it. So we're going to define volcanism more generally than just the provincial, you know, Mount Etna or Mount Vesuvius erupting and killing everything in sight. Volcanism is important for building what we'll refer to as the secondary crust. This is the crust which is built by bringing material from the inside and repaving the surface. It also plays an important role in the building of atmospheres because as you bring that material up from the interior, there are gases dissolved in that molten rock just like gases dissolved in a bottle of soda pop. And when you take the lid off the soda pop, the gases go whoosh out. The same happens when you bring up liquid magma from the interior of a planet all those dissolved gases suddenly find themselves in a low-pressure environment on the surface, and poof, a tremendous amount of gas comes pouring out of the volcanoes. And this, in fact, is not only a process which repaves the surface, but it builds an atmosphere. In fact, it built the primordial atmospheres of all the terrestrial planets, except for, of course, we'll leave out the moon, because the moon's formation was probably due to a giant impact, and therefore actually destroyed all its volatiles in the impact, and never went through a stage of volcanism, which produced an atmosphere. Finally, once you've, in addition to volcanism, there's a third process that can come into play that generically we will refer to as tectonism, like as in tectonic plates. This refers to crustal movement due to hot interior just below it. There's various kinds of tectonic activity we've seen. Wrinkling of the crust on Mercury. As Mercury begins to shrink as it cools, the crust actually moves and wrinkles. That's a form of tectonism. It's kind of a passive tectonism, but it's tectonism nonetheless. And so we got the lobate scarps on, on Mercury. On the Earth, we have, of course, a broken up crust into multiple tectonic plates, and those plates slide laterally against each other. And that produces tectonic activity that's continually rebuilding the crust today. On Venus, we saw vertical upwelling. We see hotspot volcanoes and things like that. So tectonism is a crustal movement. Volcanoes is another source. And of course, impact cratering. All of these together work to alter planetary surfaces over geologic history. Now, of these, again, it's worth emphasizing that the, last, the first one is simply external. It's what the environment contains, and it's very time dependent. Whereas the other two, volcanism and tectonism, are driven by the internal structure of the planets. And the question that's going to become of whether volcanism exists in the present epoch is tantamount to answering the question, is the interior hot enough for, for volcanism? Similarly, for tectonism, in order for tectonic activity to occur, some of the types of that tectonic activity are driven by internal motions inside a liquid interior. But as the interior solidifies, you shut that down because you shut down those internal motions. So let's take a look at the individual planets and see what we get. Well, so again, we'll, we'll keep this divide between the small bodies and the large bodies. And now you'll see where I've motivated where that divide occurs. On the small planetary surfaces, meaning Mars, Mercury, and the Moon, what we see is that the surfaces are, for the most part, very, very old. Not completely old, 100%, but for example, the case of the Moon and Mercury, they're old, heavily cratered surfaces whose age is in excess of 3 billion years. 
We know that age because that's the end of the Epoch of Heavy Bombardment. So if you see the old craters left over from the Epoch of Heavy Bombardment, <clears throat> that's when, the, if you will, the shaping of those surfaces ended when the last few bursts of meteors hit. What you end up with on these things is that the, the crust basically is a single piece, that the planet is basically solidified into a single piece, and the only kind of tectonism you're going to get is going to be vertical tectonism, which is basically going to be driven by stationary upwelling. So, for example, the repaving of sections of the moon on the Maria were probably caused by giant impacts, but on Mars, which is a much larger body, stayed molded for a much longer period, you got shield volcanoes and hotspot volcanoes even as recently as about 300 million years ago in the case of the giant volcano Olympus Mons. But all of those are vertical processes, stuff coming up from below and building crust in place. You don't have any of that lateral sliding to and fro that we see, for example, on the Earth. Now, crustal shaping, these planets, the small planets, actually have both a primary and a secondary crust. The primary crust was the first crust that it possessed, and it was shaped primarily by meteoritic impacts during the first billion years of the solar system's history. The secondary crust, however, has been shaped by volcanism, by the bringing up of large amounts of lava from the interior and paving over sections of the surface that formerly were heavily cratered. So, for example, the maria on the moon are a good example of volcanism, here it's volcanism induced by a large impact, but it cracks open the crust, and then the interior material wells up and flows out. So you can't, don't expect to think that you're going to see on the moon, you know, the, the famous cinder cone volcanoes belching gas. It didn't happen on the moon. The moon's volcanism was kind of a slow ooze out of the cracks and formed gigantic plains of lava, which actually is a very common form of volcanism on the Earth, but back in the geologic past rather than in the present. On Mars, that volcanism actually did take the place of gigantic cinder cone shield volcanoes, Olympus Mons and the giant volcanoes of the Tharsis Plain. Those are an area where those volcanoes were a hot spot that broke through the crust in place, built up gigantic shield volcanoes, and as the lava flowed out, it basically repaved the entire Tharsis Plain, perhaps as recently as three to 300 to 500 million years ago. On Mercury, we also see some lava plains, and I've spelled plains there wrong, um, which again is going to be very similar to the kinds of lava features like the Mario we see on the moon. Probably impact-related features, but maybe there's more there. The question that comes, of course, from Mercury is we've only seen one half the planet, so a big question people are looking forward to is whether there are more extensive plains of lava flow that built up secondary crust, we see small ones, are there bigger ones on the other un so far unseen side of Mercury? So again, sort of recap, what the small planetary surfaces show are old surfaces, the primary crust is the three billion year old surface shaped by impacts, and then there's a secondary crust which is shaped by volcanism, stuff oozing up from the middle in place, a vertical upwelling. You're not getting any side to side plate motions, there never was plate tectonics on any of these worlds as near as we can tell. We simply don't see the tracers of it. We don't see lateral thrust faults. We don't see anything like that. All we see is vertical motions, vertical tectonism in the form of volcanism. Now, the large planet surfaces are a big contrast. Okay, I got a little fancy here with the PowerPoint. So we have our rotating globes in which we've stripped the Earth of its atmosphere and oceans on the top. And so the colors here represent terrain relief. Blue is the deepest. Green and red gets to be the highest. So, for example, you can see the Andes and the Rocky Mountains there. 
and as the Earth swings by, you can see the Himalayan plateau right there. That's high terrain. Then you see the deep oceans. There's the mid-ocean ridge. You can see that the Earth is broken up into plates. On the bottom is, is Venus, rotating in the retrograde sense. To remind you, it does rotate backwards, although I've sped it up a great deal. Again, lots of low-lying plains, but there are a number of highlands that show up. And again, you're lacking sort of cratered highlands. We don't see cratered highlands on either the Earth or on Venus. Both Earth and Venus are characterized by possessing young surfaces, young meaning geologically. For example, on average, the Earth's surface is less than 200 million years old. That isn't to say that it's 200 million years old everywhere on the surface. The Rocky Mountains are about 60 million years old. Out here in the mid-ocean ridges, the crust is brand new, born just yesterday as new volcanoes or, or new lavas oozing up from the middle. On the Rocky Mountains, it's 60 million years old, but in the middle of the continental shields in Australia and, and Canada, the age gets up around 3 to 4 billion years. So it's a range of ages, but really if you did sort of a time average, most of the crust is pretty young. Venus, largely judged by looking at the lack of impact craters in the surface, appears to have a surface that is mostly younger than about a half a billion years, about 500 million years old. Probably some kind of catastrophic epoch of repaving, maybe catastrophic volcanism. We do not know the cause or the source. All we see today is all the hallmarks of a very, very young, what we often refer to as a tertiary crust. It's one that's been built up after the first level of buildup that came from, from volcanism after the primary crust. So primary, secondary, tertiary in order of time. Now, both these planets appear to have very active surfaces today. The Earth, of course, we know is active, as we saw before. The Earth's uh, surface is being constantly reshaped by plate tectonics. The, the crust is broken up into multiple plates, and there is a process of lateral recycling. Circulation currents in the magma, which is, it's not so much liquid as it's kind of got the, the consistency of Play-Doh or, or silly putty, is actually sufficient to cause the plates to slide around and grind past each other, moving side to side in lateral motions. You get seafloor spreading, which is continually bringing up new material from below and building new crust. You get two plates crashing together at a convergent boundary, and you get subduction as one plate is shoved underneath another, shoved into the mantle, melted, and basically recycled in that way. And you also get upthrust, where material which used to be below the ground due to that plate collision gets thrust upward. And so, for example, you see this section of plate boundaries here, the high Andes, the Rockies, and the Sierras are where we have plate boundaries giving us a wrinkle and upthrust. On Venus, this process appears to be different. For one thing, that Venus is not broken up into tectonic plates. All the appearance and evidence so far is that Venus has a single plate crust and that it is dominated not by lateral but by vertical recycling. We see things like pancake domes. We see volcanic regions which appear to rise over regions where the mantle is welling upwards. So we get this sort of upward welling and down welling positions. We do get circulation, apparently, in the mantle of Venus. But because the crust is all of one piece, instead of that upwelling dragging plates around laterally, there's nothing to drag around because it's all of a piece. So all of your tectonism is going to be where you have an upwelling, you get a push up and a dome that might break out through the surface and flow out onto the plane. And in other places where you get the downwelling, that downwelling pulls down on the crust and leads to the deep depressions like the coronae. So we have the pancake domes and the coronae on the surface, and we see sort of regions pushed up and regions depressed. 
but it's vertical recycling as opposed to the lateral recycling on the Earth. So these are active tertiary crusts. They are being continually repaved. In the case of Venus, it was one massive epoch of repaving a half a billion years ago, and now it's pretty much down to just kind of local stuff. And we really won't know the exact ages of local regions until we can actually build probes tough enough to stand up to Venus's harsh environment and actually bring back or analyze rocks in place. I don't know if there's any plans to do that anytime in the future. It's very expensive and difficult. And on the Earth, of course, we have a long, rich history of following the geology of a very active, dynamic planet. So that takes, takes the surfaces, uh, the contrast among the surfaces. These are active processes, cratering impacts, volcanism, and tectonism are the three processes that shape the Earth. The Earth looks very different today than it looked even a few hundred million years ago due to the vertical lateral motions. The lateral motions give us, of course, continental drift. The other thing that can happen is the interior of the planet. And this is less obvious. The interior of the planet can also evolve in time. Primarily, what drives going on in the interior is internal heating and subsequent cooling. That's what's going to drive the evolution of the planetary interior. You start out with a lot of heat, which is basically heat of formation. And then over time, if you have no additional sources of heat, the planet's interior will begin to cool off, much in the same way that you can put a cannonball into a forge, heat it up until it's glowing just white hot, just below the melting point, and as you bring it out of the forge and bring it away from the source of heat, it will take many hours to cool off. The very first stage of this evolution occurs at the time of formation. It's the process of differentiation. We discussed this back when we talked about the Earth. We take the Earth that's just been formed, for example, or Mars or any of, the, of these large planets. Well, we'll accept the Moon because we know the Moon's formation was a little different and Mercury was kind of wacky. But generally what you expect is as you form a large body, the rock and material, the planetesimals that assemble into this object collide with the object. As they collide, it heats up. And so the entire system becomes essentially molten at the early part of its formation. It's basically using the energy derived from its gravity field to produce the heat. When it gets hot and it's molten, the hot, the he the hot heavy material sinks to the center. The lightweight material floats to the top. So the iron and nickel sinks to the core, and the silicates float into a froth on the top, and you get differentiation. You get iron cores surrounded by silicate mantles, on top of which rides a solid silicate crust. And this is what gives you the basic internal structure of, of any body which is large enough to get its heat, its internal heat enough to make it molten. It will differentiate and differentiate quite rapidly on a geologic time scale. This provides the initial heat of the system. We'll call this the heat of formation. And of course, it doesn't all go away at once. It can take many billions of years on a very large object for that heat of formation to work its way to the surface and radiate into space. The second stage of this interior is going to be providing the driver for volcanism. When the mantle is still molten, now, now it doesn't mean liquid, but it means kind of at least mushy enough, primarily from initial, internal he in initial heating, but also from additional heating if the body is very large, like the Earth or Venus, radioactive elements embedded within that material produce enough heat from radioactive decay to keep the Earth and Venus and other planets hotter longer than they would if there was no such source of energy. So what radioactive elements buried deep in the Earth do is they keep the Earth hotter longer than it would be than just from the heat of formation. The Earth would have cooled off a long time ago, but for radioactive decay. You also can get additional heating from unusually heavy impacts. 
So, for example, on the moon and Mercury, a very large impact will remelt parts of the mantle and lead to volcanism in place, even if the rest of the mantle is long since solidified. Now, these magmas, which are basically the, solidified, the, the liquid, liquefied rock, will rise to the surface as volcanism. Sometimes it will come spraying out as spectacular shield volcanoes. Other times it just kind of oozes through the cracks and repaves the surface around it. So the first stage is differentiation. The second stage is in volcanism, where you kind of start rearranging the internal contents, provided the interior is hot enough for the mantle to still be molten. And that's the key to what the difference among the different planets is going to be. For the small bodies, Mercury, Venus, Mercury, the Moon, and Mars, the smaller bodies, because they're smaller, are going to cool off more rapidly. What sets the rate of your cooling is your volume, which tells you how much heat you start with, and your surface area, which is how fast you radiate it away. If any of you have ever done time with, with small children, you'll know that small children have really troubles with, with uh, thermal regulation, right? They've got little bodies. They're, they're sort of more or less spherical. And their surface area is pretty big compared to their internal volume. And so they lose heat really rapidly. So you've got to keep them wrapped up or you've got to keep them cool in the hot weather. Whereas bigger people have a larger ratio of volume to surface area. We don't have as much surface area for our interiors. And that's why you even see on really cold days, watch the people who are, the ones who are not crazy, who are walking around in shorts and shirt sleeves, they're always the big guys, right? The little skinny people aren't doing that. And it has to do with the ratio of volume to surface area. The volume gives you the amount of internal heat. The surface area is your radiation surface. The more radiation surface you got, the faster you radiate, the faster you cool. So a small body here has got a huge ratio of surface area to volume. It radiates like mad. It loses its heat quickly. And the interiors cool off to the point that the mantles very quickly solidify. At the point the mantles solidify, the tectonism basically just shuts off. Volcanism shuts off, except for occasional impacts. And so what you end up with in the small bodies is up by the present epoch, four and a half billion years from formation, we expect and, in fact, do find that these planets all have thick, cool, rigid, solid crusts. Basically, all the long-term <coughs> geologic processes have just simply shut down. In fact, some of them shut down a very long time ago. The smaller the body, the longer ago we expect the shutdown. In the large bodies, the interiors are kept hot by radioactive decay. They have so much, you know, every, every one of these bodies has radioactive decay in it, but it's a small fraction of the rock. But if you build up enough of that rock in one place, you get enough heating cumulative to actually make up the difference a little bit. And so the hot interiors are kept hot. Now, over time, the interiors do cool off. So what it does is it doesn't stop the cooling so much as, as flatten the slope out and basically run out the cooling time over many billions of years. You end up with these semi-molten mantles. The semi-molten mantles, of course, because they're going to be hot on the bottom and cool on the top, are going to set up circulation currents. And those circulation currents will then drive convective motions, which is going to drive active tectonism on the planets. And so when we look at a place like the Earth, of course, we, we see those motions. We see that active tectonism in plate tectonics. Venus, it may be present, but we see it primarily present as vertical upwelling rather than actual lateral movements of the plates. But when I look at places like Mars, I see evidence of this in the past, but I do not see present day evidence of continued upwelling. The idea is that, and it's kind of controversial, and we're not going to know for sure until we can actually get sort of networks of seismograph stations on Mars, whether Mars has gone totally solid yet or not. So Mars probably stands kind of right in the middle, we almost are certain, 
as certain as we can ever be in such things that the moon and Mercury probably are solid all the way through. So if I slice open the planets, what I expect to find is Mercury is basically one big iron core with a thick crust on it. The moon has maybe got a core. We don't know if there's a residual core left over from formation and a gigantic thick crust. And the current thinking is that Mars, in fact, has a thick solidified mantle and crust. Whereas Venus here, you'll notice there's no iron, solid iron core in here. It's thought basically it's still in a liquid state or maybe it's all, iron, all solid. It's really hard to say what's going on in Venus. We have no seismic information, so we'll just kind of leave it as a red blur here and say, I don't know. But we're pretty sure that it's, that it's an active. We see signs of current day upwelling and downwelling. So we know that this part of the, mag, the mantle is, in fact, semi-liquid. And, of course, we know a great deal about the interior of the Earth from many decades of seismology, which tells us we have a solid iron core surrounded by a liquid iron core. That liquid iron core is convection currents giving rise to a strong magnetic field. And, of course, we have the semi-molten, mushy mantle, which is two-thirds of the mass of the Earth, and that's what drive plates tectonics and volcanism on the present-day Earth. So this is the contrast of the interiors of the planets. It's the evolution is driven by cooling and whatever additional sources of internal heating it has to keep it hotter than it would be if all it had to work with was the heat of formation. And that's what drives the interiors of these things. Finally, planetary atmospheres. Mercury and the moon have no atmosphere. They're simply too warm, and their gravity is too weak. It's a double whammy in order to be able to hang on to all but the most trace of gases. If, even if they started out with an atmosphere, they would have lost it within a few billion years. Or in the case of the moon, it probably never had one to start with. Mercury probably did have an atmosphere to start with, we think. Venus has a very, very hot, very, very heavy, dry, bone-dry, water vapor, virtually water vapor-free carbon dioxide atmosphere. The Earth has a warm, lightweight, moist, nitrogen and oxygen atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is a trace in the Earth's atmosphere, even though it's the principal component of Venus's atmosphere. And finally, Mars has a cold, thin, also bone dry, also dominantly carbon dioxide atmosphere. So you couldn't see a possibly greater contrast. Mercury with nothing, Venus with a hot, thick, heavy atmosphere. It's got 100 times the gases in the atmosphere that the Earth has. It's ridiculously hot and it's got a runaway greenhouse effect. Earth, warm, lightweight, pretty comfortable on most days, maybe today with a light jacket or so. And Mars, really cold. You wouldn't want to go out without a thermalized parka. Thin, you'd have to have supplemental oxygen. And it's a bone-dry carbon dioxide atmosphere. There's virtually no water left in Mars. So Earth is the place where liquid water abounds. In the other places, it's gone or it's hidden in the surface. In the case of Venus, it's blown off into space. In the case of Mars, it's probably a combination of sequestered in the, on the subsoil and, and gone off into space. Couldn't possibly be different. Well, there's a question about this thing. How do planets hang on to their atmospheres? Now, here's a kind of complicated-looking plot. What I've plotted on the, on the y-axis is the escape speed measured in kilometers per second from the surface of the planet versus the temperature of the planet in degrees Kelvin here. And I plotted it in a kind of nice backwards way that it's hotter on the left and warmer on, and cooler on the right. So I've got hot planets going here and cold planets going there. The reason I did that is I'm mimicking distance from the sun. So on the left, things close to the sun. On the, on the right, things far away from the sun. Now, if we just look at these five points here in the lower left-hand corner of the plot, I have the Earth, and I've got two points for the Earth. The surface and the exosphere, which is the top of our atmosphere, is very hot. That enhances things. Venus, 
Mars, which has also got an exosphere, Mercury, and the Moon. Each of these diagonal lines represents the escape speed of different atomic and molecular species. Hydrogen is the lightest element, so at a given temperature it has the highest escape speed. A small thing moves very fast at the same energy. Whereas carbon dioxide, the heaviest molecule I've uh, shown here, is the heaviest (coughs) molecule of the whole bunch, and it's going to have the slowest speed at a given temperature. The way to read this plot is if the planet is below the lines, those gases will escape because they're moving faster than the escape speed for the planet, and those gases whose lines are below the planet's point will be retained because their escape speed is less than the escape speed from the planet, and they cannot break free of the atmosphere. So what you see is hydrogen and molecular hydrogen basically escape from everywhere, including the Earth, very quickly. They escape from Venus, they escape from Mars. Same is true of helium. So everywhere on the Earth, this is kind of a deceptive point because we have to not really talk about the surface, but the top of the atmosphere. Helium and hydrogen will have long since escaped, but notice the giant outer planets I've drawn in the upper right-hand corner, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, hang on to, or all, can hang on to hydrogen and helium. However, water vapor, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide for Venus, Earth, and Mars are all below those points. And so we expect that these planets have enough of an atmosphere to hang on to water vapor, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide. These molecules are too big and sluggish. When I talk about mercury, Mercury can't hold on to either water or nitrogen, and in fact it looks like it could hold on to carbon dioxide, but in fact the carbon dioxide evaporation time, because it's so close to this line, is less than a billion years. And the moon, it's a little deceptive the way the plots are pointed given limited pixel sizes. In fact, the moon can't hold on to anything, because its gravity is too small and it is too hot. It's over in the warm part of the curve. We're going to see this curve again. You'll notice some other people, other planets, places put on this on this plot, Titan, the giant moon of Saturn, Pluto, Triton, and Eris. These are outer solar system objects, which are icy worlds, and guess what? They're very cold, so even though they're much smaller, they can actually hold on to an atmosphere, as we're going to see. All right, so what does this all mean? Well, atmospheres, first of all, have to come from someplace. Planets do not form with atmospheres. The process of formation of a planet is too violent. It makes the surface too hot. Any atmosphere on that planet would simply be destroyed because the surface temperature would be so high, the gases would simply evaporate away. So during formation, during their molten, you'd first of all don't get many volatiles because you're close to the sun. You're inside the frost line, and the volatiles are all moving outwards as you go out of the solar system. So basically, you never build an atmosphere during formation. Atmospheres come after formation. The primordial atmosphere is built primarily from outgassing. As those dissolved gases that are locked in the interior rocks make their way to the surface during the period of active volcanism, the planet's surfaces have cooled enough that it can hold on to and retain some of those gases. Comets coming in from the outer solar system, of which there are expected to be many during the early portion of the solar system, because comets are leftover volatiles from the outer solar system beyond the frost line, will carry in frozen volatiles and actually smack into the planet. There's some sentiment, in fact, that the comets may have been a substantial contributor to the oceans on the Earth. Now, once you do this, once you go through this process of outgassing, what you expect is to build up heavy atmospheres, primarily of carbon dioxide, water, vapor, and nitrogen. So these are all in the gas phase here. Now, hydrogen and 
Helium may come out of the gas in the rock too, but it's going to be lost very quickly because those gases are all moving too fast and they escape from it. It's too warm on the inner planets and their gravity is collectively or individually too weak to hold on to hydrogen and helium, but they can retain carbon dioxide, water, and nitrogen. So this is interesting. We have a prediction that all four terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, started with the same primordial atmosphere. So what differs now is what they did with that atmosphere over the course of the next few billion years. How do atmospheres evolve? Atmospheres do evolve. All terrestrial planets probably started out with the same atmospheric compositions, hot, heavy carbon dioxide and water vapor atmospheres. The subsequent evolution is driven by three effects. The first of these is the greenhouse effect that we met when we talked about the Earth. This affects the balance between solar heating and atmospheric cooling. It basically is a way in which infrared radiation is trapped by the atmosphere and the opacity of molecules, and it keeps the atmosphere hotter than it would be if it was in equilibrium with the sun. The Earth, for example, is 35 Kelvin warmer. Planetary gravity plays a role. If the planetary gravity is big, even if the atmosphere is hot, it can hang on to it, whereas if the gravity is small, that atmosphere can literally evaporate away. So planetary gravity affects the ability of the atmosphere to retain its hot atoms and molecules. And finally, chemistry plays a role. If we have carbon dioxide and water present, there are certain types of chemistry that can occur that can alter the composition of the atmosphere, particularly if water can get into a liquid state. If you have liquid water, there is chemistry that begins to interact with the carbon dioxide and remove it from the atmosphere, putting that into other forms. So all three are going to play a role in the atmospheric evolution. Now the greenhouse effect, just to summarize, makes the surface temperature warmer than it would be if there was no atmosphere present. So for example, the Earth is about 35 degrees Kelvin warmer than it would be without an atmosphere. Without an atmosphere, it's 255 Kelvin. The freezing point of water is 273 Kelvin. Whereas you add 30-odd 30, 30 Kelvin to that, with an atmosphere, it's up around 285, 290 degrees Kelvin. That's above the freezing point of water. Liquid water can exist. On Venus, the greenhouse effect in the present day has run away, and the surface temperature is 750 Kelvin. That's too hot for liquid water, and so water would be expected to be a vapor. And on Mars, even with a modest greenhouse effect, and it's argued whether Mars has a greenhouse effect or not, it's still too cold for liquid water. So greenhouse effect can help. It really tells you what the greenhouse effect contributes to is, is water liquid, yes or no, in this atmosphere? Yes on the Earth, vapor on Venus, frozen on Mars. Ah, notice all three of those atmospheres are very different in their current structure. That's one of the keys. Mercury's atmosphere would have been too hot for liquid water in the beginning it would have simply shut down any carbon dioxide water chemistry. You would have gotten a very rapid runaway greenhouse effect. The temperature of Mercury's atmosphere would have skyrocketed. As the temperature skyrockets, it now has got such a weak gravity that it can't even hold on to the heavy molecules. It could not even hold on to the water vapor, could not hold on to the carbon dioxide. And within one billion years, any volatiles that came blowing up out of the, out of the interior from volcanism would simply evaporate off the planet and dry it out completely. Remove and strip off the atmosphere. And that's exactly what probably happened. So Mercury may have had a hot primordial atmosphere but a runaway greenhouse effect basically heated it to the point that it just evaporated off. 
And Mercury today has no atmosphere at all in the current epoch except for traces of gas. It kind of grabs on by as it comes on by from the solar wind. Venus's atmosphere. The hot greenhouse effect on Venus's atmosphere makes it too hot for liquid water. Now, it might have had hot early oceans, but this is a highly speculative idea that would have evaporated very quickly as the greenhouse effect began to run away. And the runaway greenhouse effect means that water always stays a, va a vapor. If water is a vapor, then what you get is a hot, heavy carbon dioxide and nitrogen atmosphere. Because the water is always a vapor, it cannot react with the carbon dioxide to bring it out of the atmosphere. So the carbon dioxide and nitrogen always stay in the atmosphere. The water vapor, is because it's so hot, the water molecules can get to the top of the atmosphere. When they get to the top of the atmosphere, solar ultraviolet radiation busts the water into hydrogen molecule and oxygen. Oxygen is ferociously reactive and basically grabs any molecule it can nearby and reacts with it. But the hydrogen can escape off into space. Over time, what this does is it basically destroys the water vapor. And eventually, you get what you get for Venus, a dry, super hot greenhouse atmosphere with heavy, 100 times the mass of the Earth, but mass of the Earth's atmosphere, but no water vapor at all. It's all been lost in the last few billion years. So again, same starting point as Mercury, but a very different evolution. It's big enough to hold on to the carbon dioxide and the nitrogen, but the water gets destroyed by ultraviolet radiation and then floats off into space because the individual components cannot be retained. What about the Earth? The Earth is sort of a Goldilocks situation. It's actually cool enough for liquid water. Not too hot, not too cool, but just right. This is important because it means the water can begin to condense out of the atmosphere, and all of a sudden, the atmosphere loses weight. It loses some of its greenhouse gases when they basically fill up the ocean basins. Remember, the Earth's surface is 70-odd percent oceans. Now, this sets up a cycle of evaporation and precipitation, which keeps water vapor and water liquid cycling through the system. So now it's not just a gas or just a liquid, but now it's become part of the system. And that's important because this system drives carbon dioxide chemistry. The carbon dioxide gets dissolved into water, it gets dissolved into the oceans, and gets locked into carbonaceous rocks. As the temperature drops and, this plant, and, and plant life begins to thrive in the presence of liquid water, it begins to convert CO2 in the atmosphere into oxygen, boosting the oxygen content. And then a mild greenhouse effect with the residual water vapor and carbon dioxide in what is now a largely nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere keeps the planet warm enough to keep liquid water so life doesn't die. The result, we get a warm, moist nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere with only traces of carbon dioxide and water. Mars may have been warm enough for water in the first billion years, so some of the CO2 got scrubbed out by that water chemistry. But as the carbon dioxide comes out of the atmosphere, the greenhouse effect shuts down and the atmosphere cools off and water freezes out. It gets sequestered into the rocks below, and the remaining carbon and nitrogen begin to escape into space. As a consequence, Mars has a thin, mostly carbon dioxide and nitrogen atmosphere in the present day. So if we look at the surfaces of the individual terrestrial planets, we see a cold, very, very hot, airless Mercury, a super hot, super heavy atmosphere on Venus, the warm, moist, nice Earth, and the cold, dry deserts of Mars. 
which of these is going to be the future of the Earth? Well, I'm sorry to say it's probably going to be Venus here because as the sun begins to heat up, it's going to alter that balance of heating and cooling. It's a fourth factor. The sun heats and grows brighter as it ages. And in about a billion years, this will become this. The Earth will become like Venus in about 1.1 billion years when the oceans begin to evaporate, shutting down the carbon dioxide chemistry and triggering a runaway greenhouse effect. See you all tomorrow.